The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. All right, um, we have been looking at uh, the significance of Luther in the history of in the history of the church's understanding of the canon. And um, I, again, I want to remind you of the fact that it is not as though Luther wrote some extensive treatise on the canon or um, gave a lot of uh, systematic attention to the theological and historical questions, but um, partly because of the, of the specific historical context in which he found himself, he had to address these issues in a way that had not been addressed before. And uh, therefore, uh, some of his views, some of his decisions had a, a fairly significant impact uh, on further uh, discussion. In the outline, I want to uh, say a little bit about those subsequent uh, discussions, uh, the Catholic-Protestant reflections. In other words, the kinds of issues and debates that uh, took place within the context of these differences between the uh, Roman Catholic Church and what had now become Protestant um, uh, churches. You uh, are aware of the fact that in response to the uh, Protestant Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church took steps uh, to deal with the issues that had been raised, uh, both in terms of, uh, of clarifying the, the church's own position, uh, making statements, um, which many of which were of a uh, you know, strong judgment against uh, what they perceived to be heresies, Protestant heresy, if you will, and also to um, make some progress in the uh, evolving and reforming uh, development of, uh, of the church itself. Now, you see, from the Protestant point of view, what was taking place now in the Roman Catholic Church in the middle of the 16th century was a counter-reformation. And, and that's the way that Protestants usually uh, describe it, the counter-reformation. In other words, the, the, the Roman Catholic Church reacting to the Protestant Reformation. It's important for you to appreciate that from the Roman Catholic perspective, they wouldn't use the term counter-reformation. And they would want to argue that long before uh, there were Protestants on the scene, uh, there were already movements within the Roman Catholic Church seeking to reform uh, and to bring about uh, positive changes in the church. Now, one of the most significant events in this process of whatever you want to call it, counter-reformation or evolving you know, changes or whatever, 
is the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent, which meant for a number of years, but uh, in particular, uh, in the year 1546, uh, some uh, important decisions were made. And by the way, I guess I should say that the Council of Trent in particular, if anything deserves the, uh, the statement or the qualification counter-reformation, it is the Council of Trent because so much of what went on during that council was a, uh, a response to the Protestant um, claims. Now I have here in the um, overhead a section from the canons and decrees of the uh, Council of Trent which are particularly relevant to what we're interested in right now. Um, trying to um, remember the specific um, here. Yeah, this is the fourth session. The fourth session. Uh, as I said, they met over a number of years, and they had, um, you know, they would met for a prolonged period of time, and, and each of those times was called a session. And uh, the fourth session uh, took place in uh, in 1546. And uh, for example, they speak about the. Um, um, the promise of God first proclaimed with, with his own mouth and so on, uh, his apostles. Uh, then it's, look at the way in which the, um, the revelation is described here. Uh, and seeing clearly that this truth and discipline are contained in the written books and the unwritten traditions. So now that you have a coordinating of the written word of God with the unwritten traditions. Does that sound like the oral law? Um, received by the apostles from the mouth of Christ himself or from the apostles themselves the Holy Ghost dictating uh, have come down even in, unto us transmitted as it were from hand to hand and then um, uh, there are some other comments here then they, they give a list of the books which are regarded as part of scripture and of course included here are the Old Testament apocryphal books, uh, Tobias, Judith, and some of the others. Now this is the point where the, uh, the Roman Catholic Church for the first time uh, officially declares these books as part of the Old Testament canon. And that is why, you will recall, I know you've forgotten by now, um, but nevertheless, Deuterocanonical, you know, deuterocanonical, that's the, uh, the point, that although the church was using these books all along and they were being regarded as canonical, no formal statement had been made. They had not been, quote-unquote, canonized, you see, until this later stage. And this is where it happens. Now, we're interested, of course, in the New Testament canon right now, rather than the Old Testament, but there are certain principles with regard to the theological conception and historical conception of canon that uh, come into expression in the discussion of the Old Testament uh, Apocrypha. Um, well, then they list the New Testament books, no problem there for us. And then you have these uh, rather strong uh, statements. Uh, if anyone received not as sacred and canonical the said books entire with all their parts, uh, 
and I think probably in Tyrell all their parts may be a reference to the fact that there are few books in the Old Testament uh, that are additions in the, among the Apocrypha. You see, there are additions to the canonical books, like the additions to Daniel. And, and that's probably what's in view in that phrase. As they have been used to be read in the Catholic Church and as they are containing the old Latin Vulgate edition. So now here you have a formal recognition of the Vulgate as the standard uh, that the church is using. And knowingly and deliberately contemn the traditions aforesaid, let him be anathema. So anyone who does not receive all of that, including the, the apocryphal books of the Old Testament, in the Vulgate edition, if you don't receive that, you're anathema. Let all therefore understand in what order and in what manner the said synod, after having laid the foundation of the confession of faith, will proceed, and what testimonies and authorities it will ma mainly use in confirming dogmas and in restoring morals in the church. Moreover, the same sacred and holy synod, considering that no small utility may accrue to the church of God if it be made known, which out of all the Latin editions now in circulation of the sacred books is to be held as authentic, ordains and declares that the said old and vulgate edition, which by the length and usage of so many ages has been approved of in the church, be in public lectures, disputations, sermons, and expositions held as authentic, and that no one is there, is to dare or presume to reject, to reject it under any pretext whatever. Furthermore, in order to restrain petulant spirits, it decrees that no one relying on his own skill shall in matters of faith and of morals pertain to the edification of Christian doctrine, resting the sacred scripture to his own senses, presume to interpret the said sacred scripture contrary to that sense which Holy Mother Church, whose it is to judge of the true sense and interpretation of the Holy Scripture, hath held and doth hold or even contrary to the unanimous consent of the fathers, even though such interpretations were never intended to be at any time published. Contraveners shall be made known by their ordinaries and be punished with the penalties by law established. And so the Inquisition and all that you've heard about uh, is related to this thing. But, but see, you have to appreciate the, um, uh, the clarity and conviction with which the Roman Catholic Church is saying, Holy Mother Church is the one who interprets scripture. And uh, the whole tradition, including the opinion of the fathers and so on, are part of that. And so you have this uh, basic commitment to a, um, a tradition that is coordinated with scripture. I'm using the word tradition in the fullest sense possible, including the way in which the church now uh, sees herself as the arbiter, as the one that interprets, who, that knows the sense of scripture. Yeah. So there's more of a on that. Well, they don't, they don't really give uh, argumentation here with regard to that, except in, in their conviction, you see, that the church, as the body of Christ, there, there's a very strong sense here of the, uh, the incarnation, if you will, continues within the official church. And therefore, uh, it is, from their point of view, nonsense to think that any individual, by his private skill interpretation, is going to come up with the right answer as distinct from 
the mind of the church, which is what Christ has authorized, you see. <clears throat> In the final analysis of what happens with regard to their concept of canon is that scripture is in fact sanctioned by the church. Scripture is sanctioned by the church. Now you don't have that actual statement. I mean, that's not, that's not the way it is expressed. But I think it is a fair uh, characterization of what's going on here. Um, that it is the church that makes the determination. And you have to submit to the understanding of the church with regard to that. And therefore, uh, to, to look at it from a slightly different uh, perspective here, the church maintains the canon. The church maintains the canon. Now, I'm not saying that the uh, theologians and, and uh, the, 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 all this group that was making these formulations, that they were consciously setting the church above scripture. I, I don't, I'm not even sure that they would have thought along those lines. But what I'm suggesting is that in, in effect that is what happens. Uh, the church is the one that determines what is the canon and so logically the church has a certain priority here. Protestant thought uh, continued to develop with regard to these matters. And uh, the next thing that I, that I want to look at is uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith and the way that uh, it formulates um, a view of, uh, of the biblical canon. It's important, again, to uh, keep in mind that um, you know, there, were, there were very many confessions of faith produced within the Protestant, the broad Protestant uh, movement. You have the Lutheran, uh, various Lutheran documents. Um, you have uh, quite a series of Reformed uh, uh, creeds as well. The Westminster Confession of Faith is one of the quite few, actually, that um, reflect in an explicit way on the uh, idea of the Bible as canon, the idea of Bible as canon. As you uh, are aware of, I'm sure, the Westminster Confession of Faith actually begins with a discussion of Scripture. Uh, that, that's distinctive to the Westminster Confession of Faith. Most, uh, most creeds do not do that. And uh, some people find that objectionable, by the way. Um, you know, maybe a reflection of bibliolatry or something like that. But um, it, it is interesting, and at the very least, it tells you something about how the Westminster theologians, the Westminster divines, so-called, um, viewed what was happening. They obviously felt that in this whole development in the church and, and the Protestant uh, movement and the polemic against the church, it is your constant conception of scripture that, uh, that becomes a primary uh, concern. And so it is dealt with, uh, uh, you know, initially. You have a list of the books of the Bible that are considered to be canonical. And of course, the apocryphal books are not there. 
And then uh, the statement is made after the list is given, all which are given by inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life. Now, rule of faith and life, that's canon, remember. That's what canon means. Then look at um, paragraph 3. The books commonly called Apocrypha, not being of divine inspiration, are no part of the canon of the scripture, and therefore are of no authority in the church of God, nor to be any otherwise approved or made use of than other human writings. You're not saying that these books are bad. Uh, you certainly may use them the way that you may use other human writings, but you cannot use, use them in the same way in which you use scripture. Now, this statement is, uh, is very interesting because you see the way in which several ideas are being correlated. Divine inspiration, canon, authority, these things are intimately related, uh, and therefore they sort of imply each other uh, in one way or another. To speak of um, inspiration in the way in which that paragraph does, that sentence, is to view that element as prior, that is, as providing the ground in some way. Now, later on, we're going to have to get into the question about the criteria for canonicity. And, and I don't want you to, con to confuse what I'm saying now with that problem. In other words, um, because some people would say, what de determines whether a book is canonical? Well, if it's inspired. Well, it's not as simple as that, and, and we'll have to deal with that problem later. But um, I, what I'm saying right now is that I, I don't believe necessarily the divines are making that uh, point, that if it is inspired, that is what determines whether something is canonical. But it is something close to that. Uh, in some way, uh, inspiration uh, serves as the ground, as the ground for the, uh, the um, statement. So then you have canon, and from that authority is, is derived. Uh, although some people might argue that the, um, and therefore are of no authority, maybe that's not so much a consequence, but maybe you, you could read that exegetically, you know, that is uh, as an explanation. What do we mean to say that it is canon? Well, that it is authoritative. And if something is not canonical, then it is not authoritative. Uh, so you can, you can relate those two concepts as one being derived from the other or as the two being more or less uh, equivalent. Now, there's no further mention of canon in the confession. But the point is that at this very early stage in the document, it is established that when authority is mentioned, by implication, the canon is in view. You understand what I'm saying? Don't make the mistake of assuming that because the word canon does not appear in the subsequent paragraphs or elsewhere in the confession, that it's, it's out of sight. No, because the notion of authority is a very dominant one. And uh, by now you know that when something, that, that when the idea of authority is mentioned, what is behind that is the canon, because in the scripture you have the only rule of faith and life. The only rule of faith and life.
Now, let me just read a couple of other uh, sections here that uh, you probably are familiar with, but uh, paragraph four, the authority of the Holy Scripture. So you're, you're building on, on this idea. For which it ought to be believed and obeyed dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church. Now you see, this is a specific polemic against what we just read in the uh, decrees of Trent. The canon is not sanctioned by the church. The authority of, of the scripture is not determined by the church. But wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. And therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. Now, this paragraph is, is very, very interesting. It is, you know, kind of a blatant affirmation of what we may want to call the self-witness of Scripture. And uh, I have to say more about that. Uh, those of you taking the uh, doctrine of the Word, uh, I'm sure are reflecting on this as well. But uh, we, we're going to have to come to grips with this problem that if Scripture is the final authority, by definition, you cannot come up with something above Scripture to which you can appeal uh, to help you decide that Scripture is Scripture. And, um, you know, the, the people who drew this document were not silly or thoughtless. Uh, I think this is a, a very, very suggestive way of putting it. Uh, the authority comes only from God. And by the way, note the strong personal element that is injected into the whole uh, idea here. Canon is not just some object out there. It, I mean, there's the personal authority of God behind it. And, um, and therefore it is to be received because it is God's word. Can't say much more than that. Uh, we may be moved, paragraph 5, and induced by the testimony of the church uh, to an high and reverend esteem of the Holy Scripture. They're not denying that the church uh, fulfills a role and that it has a persuasive function and that we may be indeed moved by what the church says. Don't deny that. Moreover, there are other bits of evidence that you need to take into account. And the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies, and the entire perfection thereof, are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet, notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our heart. So the element that I was mentioning before again comes out explicitly here. It's not a matter of minimizing the evidence that we may have uh, supporting the authority of Scripture. There's obviously nothing wrong to speak about the evidence from the fulfillment of prophecy or, or the unity of Scripture or, or the, the power that it has and ought to have on us to, on us to see the church as a whole uh, recognizing this truth. In the final analysis, you see, uh, our conviction 
comes from the work of the Spirit, because otherwise we would be blind. Yeah. No, they're two very separate issues. <coughs> I'm not sure what's leading you to even to ask the question, but we're talking about a completely different subject right now, really. Oh, for exegetical, sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. But that's an exegetical, you know, hermeneutical question, not a text-critical issue such. Um, in, um, in paragraph 8, eight um, you have a specific um, statement with regard to um, um, the uh, transmission of Scripture. Uh, it was immediately inspired by God and by His singular care and providence kept pure in all ages and are therefore authentical. Uh, the references to the original Greek and Hebrew. The point is here, again, a polemic against the Roman Catholic um, recognition of the Vulgate as a standard. No, you need to go back to the original languages, to the, to the Greek and the Hebrew. And there's where, and then it goes on to say, so that in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal unto them, to the original uh, scriptures. Uh, nevertheless, because the original, these original tongues are not known to all the people of God who have right unto an interest in the scriptures and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them, therefore they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation to which they come, that the word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. So uh, in, instead of uh, viewing the scripture as something to be, in effect, kept away from uh, the church as a whole, because the Vulgate, you know, how many people read Latin in the church? Uh, fewer and fewer. Uh, instead of that, what you need to do is to translate the scriptures into the common languages. And therefore, with the Reformation, you have this incredible, uh, it's like an explosion of the spread of, of the Bible, uh, making it accessible to people who have never been able to read it and had assumed that they shouldn't read it, really, because who can understand this stuff? I mean, you've got to go to the church to tell you what it means. Yeah. In um, paragraph 9 of, the, uh, of this same chapter, uh, the scripture is specifically uh, described as its own infallible rule. If you want to interpret the Bible, uh, you've got to... Uh, look at scripture itself and see how it guides us in its own interpretation. And then finally in paragraph 10, um, there's another reference to the Holy Spirit and um, particularly in matters of dispute. And um, again, it, it's important to realize that the confession is not suggesting for a minute that the Holy Spirit works apart from scripture a rather polemic is against uh, the idea that the church uh, is to judge uh, and, and exercises rule. And uh, it is within that context that you have some uh, further development of, uh, of the idea. Now, let me just summarize um, what I think is particularly important from uh, the confession statement. Each book of the Bible is inspired. That's very clear in the way in which uh, the matter is, is discussed. Each book of the Bible is inspired. God, and that means that God is the author of, of the collection. See, the New Testament is treated 
by whole Bible actually, but we're focusing now on the New Testament. It is treated as a unit, and God is the author of that unit. Therefore, it is the final and infallible authority in matters of faith and life. Let me uh, make a couple of comments uh, which are sort of parenthetical because we're going to talk about this more further on. Um, but I think that when you, when you look carefully at the way in which... The, see, the notion of authority is stated in an, in an absolute unqualified fashion. There are no qualifications about it. And that entails, I think, that, that this unit of books is complete. It is perfect. And therefore, it is closed. So when we talk about uh, whether the canon is, is uh, closed or not, I, I'm, I'm just trying to uh, suggest to you that although that language is not used here, by implication, that is what is being said. Uh, that unit is complete, it is perfect, it is closed. Moreover, there's no indication anywhere in this um, uh, chapter that the canon is qualified by anything outside of itself, whether it be the tradition, or we've got to check with the tradition to make sure that this is true, or by personal response, you know, Luther's uh, conception of, well, now, is, does this really press Christ home? Um, so the various uh, ways in which people try to come up with, um, in effect, qualifications with regard to the uh, definition of the canon, there's nothing like that in, uh, in this chapter. And uh, as I said, we'll come back to, to this question. I'm just uh, mentioning it so that um, we can make the connections later on. Let's um, move on to the modern period, and I don't want to spend too much time here, but simply to make um, a couple of observations, one having to, to do with the rise of criticism. Uh, and all that I want to um, point out here is that um, with, the, with the coming of the Enlightenment, you know, in the 18th century, um, and therefore with the emphasis given to human reason as the way to solve all your problems, basically. It seemed reasonable to people to say that you have to treat all books alike, including the Bible. To be critical, you know the word can mean different things to different people in different circumstances. Uh, it can have a, a very you know, non-judgmental uh, sense, uh, literary criticism, uh, other kinds of critical discipline simply means that you're using your, your head and that you are inquiring in detail and, and trying to make uh, uh, reasonable judgments, that's all. Then we use it in a very negative way. Uh, that person is so critical, it's always making you know, negative judgments or whatever. I think what uh, needs to be appreciated is that the concept of criticism or being critical uh, in, in this intellectual sense did involve the need to pass judgment on what you're reading. 
And if the Bible is treated like every other book, and if you're going to exercise rational criticism when you're reading the Bible, you're going to have to pass judgment on whether what the Bible says is right or wrong, good or bad, pretty or ugly, whatever. And this leads to a breakdown in the very notion of authority. So that people eventually begin to question the very idea of, of canon, the very idea of canon. An important biblical scholar who um, uh, had uh, some significant things to say here was a German uh, theologian named Zemmler. Zemmler um, wrote a, um, a book in 1771 dealing with a variety of issues, including this one. And uh, he felt, now he himself, you see, viewed himself as a Christian. He would have told you that he thinks that, that uh, the New Testament um, is authoritative in some sense, but influenced by this Enlightenment notion and the autonomy of human reason and so on, Zemmler argued that the study of the canon has to be completely open for all thoughtful Christians. In other words, it is quite proper for every single Christian to raise the question anew and to at least consider the possibility that the canon as we have it may not be the right canon, that it may not be open or whatever. Uh, and, and you see, the personal element becomes uh, quite prominent. Uh, there's an emphasis on inner conviction. You're all, you have to have this conviction that this is uh, right and that's what, that's what matters. Understandably, these kinds of concerns lead to uh, a lot of emphasis on, on the historical process so that when you get to the 19th century, there's a tremendous amount of research going on uh, regarding the history of the canon, what was happening in the early church. And uh, this leads us to the next item in the outline, uh, Tsan versus Harnack. Tsan versus Harnack. Why, why do I have that um, uh, little heading there? Well, uh, Theodor Tsan was a, um, a German New Testament scholar who lived from 1838, 1838 to 1933. He had a long life. He was a, um, undoubtedly a genius, uh, incredibly productive scholar, and uh, was widely regarded as possibly the most erudite conservative scholar of uh, his day. He was a Lutheran. He was also a little bit eccentric, and um, that created some problems sometimes in evaluating his work. He wrote a, um, some important commentaries on the New Testament. In fact, there is a series, which is the Tsan uh, series, and he didn't write every volume, but several of the more important ones edited uh, the whole thing. He wrote one of the most influential uh, introductions to the New Testament, a three-volume work that is still referred to, but especially a massive history of the canon, massive history of the canon, 
Only two volumes were published, on only I say, because uh, the project wasn't completed. But um, in those two volumes, there are about 2,000 pages of packed information. And that's only, see, the, the historical synthesis. He published uh, 10 volumes of investigations, Forschungen, on the history of the canon, uh, taking specific problems and issues. And there are about 3,000 pages of um, investigation, uh, very detailed, you know, scholarly stuff. He was asked to write an article on the canon for an important uh, German uh, religious encyclopedia, the Protestantische Reale Encyclopedia. And uh, it's an important um, article because it forced him <laughs> to kind of crystallize and synthesize those 5,000 pages worth of uh, information into something readable for a broader audience. Uh, subsequent to that, he, um, he revised, it was a long article, by the way. Uh, <laughs> so he revised it uh, later and, and published it separately as uh, Grundris, the Geschichte des Neutestamentischen Kanons, an outline of the history of the New Testament canon, which was published in 1901, uh, and unfortunately was never translated, although if you want to read Tsan's uh, own views directly, um, there is that so-called the New Schaff Herzog Encyclopedia of Religious Knowledge, which we have in the library right there in the, at the beginning of the religious encyclopedias and so on, the Schaff Herzog Encyclopedia, and the, the article in, in the New Testament canon is by Tsan. It's not as complete, but uh, you can get a sense for, for his uh, way of thinking and, and argumentation. That's uh, Tsan. Harnack, Adolf von Harnack was born in 1851 and died in 1930, from 1851 to 1930, professor in Berlin. So he was a younger contemporary of Tsan and uh, the best known spokesman for liberal Christianity. I'm using the word liberal here, not in the general sense, you know, he's a liberal, but in the rather specific sense of in, you know, in classical liberalism at the end of the 19th, the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, Harnack um, delivered some lectures right at the turn of the century in Berlin, Das Wesen des Christentums, the, the essence of Christianity, which was translated as what is Christianity. And that became kind of, you know, you want to know what liberalism is, you read that book. But uh, he was also a uh, remarkable New Testament scholar and also a scholar of, of church history. He wrote a whole um, um, seven-volume history of uh, doctrine and did a lot of work on the early church and, and the canon. Um, there's a story. Um, I heard uh, Charles Woodbridge uh, talk about when he went over to study in uh, in. Berlin with Harnack in, in the 1920s, and uh, I don't know where I got this story from him or somewhere else, but at least one of the stories that uh, went around was that he was teaching a class on the um, 
uh, the pastorals, I think, and he was in his office and had come in late and something and didn't have much time to prepare, so he sat down for a couple of minutes, looked at the Greek text, then went on to the class and virtually wrote the whole text of First Timothy 2 or something on, on the, on the um, blackboard. Uh, remarkable scholar in, in many ways. And uh, the, these two scholars, uh, Tsan and Harnack, became more or less uh, the representatives of uh, two quite different ways of understanding the way in which the, uh, the New Testament canon uh, developed, if you will, and how the church dealt with it. The point of the controversy, at least the central point, was what was the role played by heresy in the formation of the canon? That is, the heresies of the second century, particularly Marcion. Harnack believed that original Christianity was a religion of the spirit, not a religion of the book. The, 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 early, excuse me, the early Christians were not interested in, in writings. It was the heretics who first showed concern for the canon. And in reaction to that, the church was compelled to accept the, the idea of a canon. And by doing that, uh, the church lost its true genius. As uh, he put it, the, the spirit was chased into a book. And so you see this conception of, um, of, a, um, of an institutionalized cold church relying on the book, contrasting to the fervor of the spirit-led apostles and, and the early Christians, that conception was very much part of, of, of the liberal um, understanding. Tsan, on the other hand, tried to demonstrate that, yes, heresy played a role in the development of uh, the church's understanding of the canon, but only in the sense that heresy accelerated a process which was already in existence. Heresy only accelerated a process which was already in existence. Now that's uh, the central issue that we're going to have to look at in more detail as we look at the second century evidence. But uh, at least be aware of, of that the important uh, uh, polemic between these two scholars. Yeah. 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 Now, just a couple of uh, comments about recent developments. Uh, that is, what's been going on the past 50 or 60 years. Um, well, these two lines of approach, represented by Tsan and Harnack, have more or less continued. Uh, there are a number of uh, scholars, for example, in, in the English-speaking world, a uh, modern scholar named John Knox wrote a book, Marcion and the New Testament, which um, pretty much built on many of Harnack's ideas. 
Kampenhausen, you have uh, a little bit of reading from Inhaz uh, von, von Kampenhausen, also assumes the, the basic soundness of Harnack's approach to this whole thing, although he makes some alterations in the picture. Whereas conservatives have tended to uh, depend on Tsan's treatment of uh, the material, although not in every respect, because you see Tsan was a Lutheran and a very self-conscious Lutheran who didn't like Reformed theology one bit. And uh, that certainly colors some of uh, his argumentations. And, and again, we may have opportunity to say a little bit about that. Um, theologically, there have been a variety of arguments uh, presented in, in the recent past. There's a certain distinctiveness to the way in which Herman Ritterboss addresses this question. That's why one of your reading assignments is from his discussion. And uh, it's important for you to, to try to grasp, you know, how is Ritterboss' approach a little bit different from, from others. And uh, we will consider that and, and talk about it uh, later in the, in the course. There are some uh, additional scholars who in, in recent years have taken uh, actually a bit of a radical turn on these things and have tried to argue that some of the historical data uh, used by scholars in the past, including people like Harnack, uh, need to be assessed differently. And uh, some of these scholars, including a fellow named Sundberg, uh, he is particularly well known in this regard, um, takes a position which uh, is, is, I think radical is a uh, reasonable term to, uh, to use in connection with his work, uh, making it sound as though there was a great deal more uh, division and, and uh, lack of uh, agreement in the early church than I think there was, and, and we'll have to uh, deal with that as well. Any questions about this rather roller coaster ride through history? Yeah. Well, obviously, it's a matter of opinion, but um, I think it is difficult uh, to um, demonstrate that uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Confession of 67 are truly compatible. Uh, and I'm not, you know, here questioning the, the motives of, of anybody there. I think probably some, many of the people who, who were involved in the Confession of 67 thought that they could, you know, in good conscience, see some continuity. But uh, at the same time, I think they were also quite conscious of feeling, hey, we're living in a different age, and, and we have to move in a different direction. And uh, we're not um, totally jettisoning the Westminster Confession of Faith, but as a matter of fact, we're interpreting it in a way that... Uh, you know, really is not compatible with the modern way of thinking anyway. Oh yeah, plenty. Although I don't think deconstructionists as such are preoccupied with them. I mean, they just, I don't think it's even a concern. The matter of canon to them is not a concern. No. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's a hard one. I, um, because you'd have to specify which area specifically. 
I think someone like John Knox does move a little more in a leftist direction, if, if you want to use that expression, a little bit more radical. Kampenhausen may be not quite the same thing, but we'll, we'll, uh, we're not finished talking about some of these people. Yeah. Oh, are you saying the fundamental? I, I think we have to say this is infallible, but we recognize that you know, in specific passages, um, if there is manuscript variation, then you're going to have to take into account the transmission of the text so that, strictly speaking, the, um, uh, especially the element of, of inerrancy uh, has to be related specifically to the original form in which the scriptures were, were given to us. Uh, however, it is true that when, this, when the uh, Westminster Confession speaks of infallible, they're thinking primarily about life, you know, faith and life, and that therefore it makes very little difference in a sense you know, which particular text you're using uh, because the doctrine is the same in all of them. And that is why I think you can, with confidence, I don't care what version you're using, I mean, you can say the same, same thing about an English translation. A translation is not infallible. These are human beings. But am I willing to say, is the King James Bible infallible? Well, yes, if we're talking about the doctrine that's taught in, in this uh, book. But I'm not saying that they're infallible in every decision they made uh, in the way in which they translated the, uh, the text. Yeah. Uh, I have one about um, the Greek uh, in regards to the Apocrypha. They, they just assume that the Apocrypha is part of the Old Testament because they use the Septuagint. Right. Question? The, the Roman Catholic, um, the Roman Catholic Church, views the Church itself as having the authority uh, to determine what Scripture says, and tradition forms a part of that. In the Protestant view, the church cannot be the ultimate arbiter of those decisions, but the church must always be subject to what the Bible is saying. And so therefore, uh, you know, as Luther would say, you have to show me from Scripture this. And when the, but the Catholic Church sometimes says, no, you have to you know, understand it in terms of, of the tradition. So the, the uh, conviction that the scriptures are the final appeal is what distinguishes this way of thinking from what the Council of Trent would have uh, uh, affirmed.